you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Animal you choose must be one-year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where, where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. When I was in college, uh, I can't remember if I've told this before, but anyway, when I was in college, my car was stolen. And months later, a friend was giving me a ride home. We're about two, three blocks from my, our house, and I see, I see a 77 Cutlass Supreme parked on the side of the road. And so then, wait, that's, that's my 77 Cutlass Supreme. So I get home and I call the cops. Okay, says the operator, go get it. I said, go get it? You mean get into a vehicle someone else has been driving as their own for two, three months and just drive it up the street a couple of blocks and then park it? No way. Okay, said the operator. What do you think you should do? It's funny you should ask me that question because not too long ago, I asked myself that same question and the answer came to me. Call the cops. They'll know what to do. Well, eventually we did come up with a plan. Uh, I went over there to, to reclaim my car, but I only did so when the cops were there. I figured that if, if the thief, thief were watching me, uh, it'd make clear that I, I was only getting into a car that was mine, and if they, they were to try to stop me, they would have this greater authority to deal with. Well, last week, our text told us the story of Moses' calling. Basically, God tells Moses to march up to Pharaoh and say, all right, give me the keys. And as far as Pharaoh was concerned, Israel was his 77 Cutlass Supreme, and it had been his for decades. And yet, this let my people go is not a request. It is not a negotiation. It is a demand. And Moses 
knows that this is not going to go over well. First of all, Israel is Egypt's labor force. And that, given that they're slaves, it is cheap labor. Second, the reason Pharaoh enslaved them is because he feared them and how big they were getting, uh, the nation was becoming. And he didn't want them to get any ideas, forming alliances with Egypt's enemies. So letting them go seem, would seem crazy. And third, probably most importantly, Pharaoh, probably the most, the most powerful man in the ancient Near East, no one makes Pharaoh do anything. You know, and so when Moses is asking God to reveal God's name, it's sort of like he wants to know who's backing me up on this? Whose authority am I operating under? Who will Pharaoh have to mess with if he decides to mess with me? And in response to this, God reveals the divine name, Yahweh. Now, in addition to being God's name, it is also a Hebrew verb. It is the verb to be. Sometimes this, this uh, name is translated as just I am. Uh, others have translated I will be who I will be, or I, I am who I am. Uh, the, the idea is that it underscores God at God's presence, right? God is present. God is eternally present. Um, others have argued, well, maybe what's being here is not so much that God as the being as much as God as bringing, God brings things into being. God causes things to be. So uh, this situation seems impossible. Well, God will bring it about. And so they say, I, I am the one who brings into being. That's what God's name means. Anyway, it's a mysterious name. And I imagine for Moses, it's a little disappointing. Because if you're Moses and you're having to go to Pharaoh, uh, a being verb, not all that intimidating. Right? It doesn't strangle authority. I mean, if you're going to be a verb, be like crush. Yeah, uh, crusher is crusher. You have to deal with crusher if you don't listen to this command. But no, it's I am. And so, in fact, Moses is right. Pharaoh isn't impressed. Here's, here's what Pharaoh says. Who is Yahweh that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. In fact, Pharaoh doesn't just reject this uh, demand. He, he issues an order so that... Uh, not, that not only he dismisses Yahweh, but to encourage Israel to dismiss Yahweh. Because after all, this, this God apparently heard the cries of God's people and decided to deliver them from oppression. And then but what Pharaoh says, oh, really, this is, this is what's happening now? Well, that's because, he says, it's because you're lazy. Not because you're oppressed, it's because you're lazy sitting around thinking about freedom. And so now I'm going to withhold straw and still expect you to make as many bricks as before. So in other words, this be being verb God just made things much worse. Now, what is being demanded of Pharaoh? 
says, let my people go. And then it doesn't stop there. And I think Charlton Heston's always, let my people go. But no, there's more to it. It says, let my people go that they may uh, hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Which is sort of surprising. Because I, I mean, this is something that's really dawned on me in recent years. No, he's, I, I would assume he said, let my people go that they may go return to their ancestral land, the land promised to them. No, that's not it at all. It's just to go out into the wilderness and have a festival to the Lord, to this God. Uh, it's, not, it's not forever. It's just for this festival. And yet, Pharaoh refuses. He doesn't have to give them up forever. He just have to give them up for the festival. He, but he cannot. He will not. Because uh, the, the problem for Pharaoh is giving them up at all. Uh, because Pharaoh, you know, in, in ancient Egypt, Pharaoh is considered to be this sort of divine mediator between um, the, the, the divine realm and the human realm. And uh, this, so as an intermediary, he is as close to God as the, most people are going to get. And the fact is, if you, if you are Pharaoh and you look around, there's lots of evidence that suggest, yeah, I am pretty much a God, right? I mean, your word is law. And so all this, there's all this reason to believe, in fact, you are worth taking, uh, it, it's, you know, it, pretty seriously. So when the God of, your, of, an, of a people you have enslaved shows up with some weird name that's like just a being verb. Who is that God? Why would, why would I feel threatened by the God of a people I, I hold in captivity? I hold their fate in my hand. No, you don't make demands of me. So then what, of course, unfolds then is the story of the ten plagues. And the, the story of the plagues is really a story about how addictive power can be and how difficult it is to give up. And like most addictions, how destructive it is uh, to hold on to when clearly it's not, even, it's not working for you. So Pharaoh, who is this Yahweh, right? Well, chapter 7, this is what uh, Moses says. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. You know, that kind of phrase, and you will know. Pharaoh is going to know who he's dealing with. He thinks he can just dismiss it. Well, he will, he's going to learn who he's dealing with. Now, striking the Nile, that first uh, plague, is first of all, and turning it to blood, it's first of all kind of creepy. But the creepiness is not the point. It's the fact that Egypt, you know, Egypt would be a desert apart from the Nile. The Nile is a, a literal lifeline. Egypt flourishes because of the Nile. And so this very first plague is a direct assault on Pharaoh's authority. Refusing this order from Yahweh has put this 
your nation at risk. Pharaoh does not respond to that one. It's only after the second plague, the frogs, that Pharaoh finally says, okay, okay, okay. He'll let Israel have their little festival. Just, just be rid of the frogs. And then the frogs die. So you've had these two, two plagues that creating this kind of chaos in Egypt, making Pharaoh feel a little powerless. But then once those frogs die, it's like, it's like Pharaoh, that addiction kicks in again, and he needs to assert his power again. So he changes his mind. No, you can't go. That's the power that Pharaoh has to say no. And so the plagues continue. And eventually Pharaoh gets to the point where, all right, let's start, let's, let's make a compromise. Uh, you know, while these gnats, a plague of gnats are buzzing around, hey, how about, uh, okay, you can have your festival, just have it here. No, that's not going to fly. And then later when there's locusts everywhere, you know, Pharaoh is yelling above the drone of these locusts. He's like, okay, do all of you have to go? Why don't some of you stay? Some of the animals stay. No, you have to let it all go, Pharaoh. And these plagues continue, and it's getting worse. In fact, like with a typical, or what often happens with an addict, is that there's an intervention. In this case, it's Pharaoh's officials that intervene. You know, the, 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 he says, they're like, look, the locusts have consumed our crops. Disease has killed our livestock. Boils cover our flesh. Let them go. Let them go. Can't you see that Egypt is in ruins? But saying no, it's like the only power Pharaoh has left. You know, when the Allied forces broke through lines at Normandy, at that point, it was clear the Allies were going to win. It was clear to everyone, of course, except Hitler. And as a result, his decisions become increasingly desperate and erratic. And so more people die after D-Day than before. They die after victory is assured than when, it, when it's still up in the air. And ultimately, the only power Hitler has left is the power to take his own life, which, of course, he does. Now, there are, just another example, there are people who argue, hey, look, you know, Lincoln really should have been a little more patient. That, in fact, uh, technological advances and market forces, they were going to make slavery uh, end in a peaceful way. But, you know, but Lincoln was too power hungry. But that's, that's really a garbage argument. First of all, it wasn't until the like the 1930s, before we were able to invent something that could pick cotton uh, at the rate that uh, human beings can. So, uh, and the other, but the main thing is, slavery was as much about power. And the Confederates were only going to give up that power when it was pried from their cold, dead hands. All of these instances of, of the the addictive power of power and how destructive it can be, it really is an illustration of uh, what we see in Genesis chapter 3, right? 
God gives Adam and Eve this garden. All of it. It's all yours. Enjoy it. Care for it. Nurture it. Be nurtured by it. With one exception, this tree here. That single tree stood as a reminder that they are not God. No matter what, I know you have a lot of power here, but you are not God. And this tree is here to kind of remind you of that. But they can't let that go. They want to be like God. So they take and eat. And doing so causes everything else to fall apart. There is a curse now that, that creates division between themselves, divisions between them and the earth, division between them and God. So what you get in Genesis is that picture in first, uh, the first chapter, God at the center, everything flourishing. But when we are gods, it is the unraveling of creation and it is death and destruction. And what, what's interesting about the ninth plague, so we get uh, the ninth of the ten, is that it, on the one hand, it seems to be like the least destructive of the plagues because it's just darkness, right? It, you know, like, behold, throughout the land, the sounds of the Egyptians stubbing their toes and bumping their heads was heard. You know, like, what? It's so dark. Okay, no big deal. But actually, it is, it is a, it's, it's very significant, first of all, because darkness is a blow to their, their, the supreme god, Ra, the sun. But it's also important because it shows what happens when we try to be God and the creation begins to unravel. And what, what we have here with the ninth plague is it's sort of like the creation returning to the way things were in its pr primordial state, right? It, it, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the uh, the earth was a formless void and darkness was over the deep. So creation is unraveling around Pharaoh. And the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is to admit that your addiction has made your life unmanageable. You have to admit your powerlessness over alcohol or drugs or whatever. And the sad thing about human beings is that often, that moment often happens when you hit rock bottom. Well, here the ninth, at the ninth plague, Pharaoh is in a place of darkness, but apparently it's not rock bottom. To get to rock bottom, we have the tenth plague, death of the firstborn. Here again, this takes on a cultural significance because your firstborn represents your legacy. They were how you would live on even after you're gone. And so now, the future. There is no future for Pharaoh. Our reading itself focuses on the preparations for this 10th plague, the anticipation it's okay. It actually has a happy ending. Oh, well. <laughs> With this 10th plague, it's, it is, it's the first time that something is required of Israel uh, to avoid be suffering the consequences of, of, the plague, of a plague. Uh, there's an emphasis in another place. 
parts where, oh, the Egyptians' livestock, it all dies, uh, but the Hebrews, it, it does not suffer the disease. But here they actually have to do something to ensure that they are passed over. And I, I suspect that's in part because it's not just Pharaoh, it's not just Hitler, it's not just uh, Confederate slave owners who want to be God, who will say, who is Yahweh that I should heed him? In, in every heart, in every heart, there is a desire to sit ourselves on the throne and refuse to relinquish power. And to underscore that, our passage not only says, okay, isn't just describing what they did then, it is one of those passages which, which is also speaking to the reader themselves and say, look, not only is this what they did, this is what you are to do. You have to remember this. You have to remember who this God is who, and who you are. You are a people needing God who comes to you in the midst of your pressure, who brings freedom. But it's also a story about what rejection, failure to listen to heed the word of Yahweh looks like. One of the people, of course, that will celebrate the Passover years and years later is Jesus. Now, the remarkable thing about Jesus is he takes this story, which is supposed to be referenced back to the, the events of, of, of Exodus, and he turns it all and he says, this is the Exodus. I am the Lamb. Uh, he will be sacrificed in, res in response to a, a gruesome assertion of power on our part. But he is the lamb. It is his blood that saves us. And so that's why we still gather around the table to remember that. Last, last week, gathered to receive that and to remember and it's important that we have those sorts of rituals because we live in a culture that is, seems dead set on making us all little pharaohs. To make us all see ourselves as consumers. Little centers of the universe who, who can't let go and just want more and more and more to consume and to consume and to consume. And the fact is, it is a result of that sort of thinking that is causing the earth to cry out. I mean, the plagues, they keep coming. Record high temperatures, wildfires, rising sea levels, droughts. You know, and, and this summer, there have been sort of renewed discussion about policies and, and products that might, uh, that could promise, that promise us that we, we can still be in control of this thing. And, there's no doubt that there are policies and products that are worth pursuing. Really, first thing we have to admit is that we've made things unmanageable. First thing we have to do is to let go. Our passage today describes this ritual, ritual of remembering. Set aside a night to remember the God who is there, the God who is I am, the being verb that is at the center, always present. There is a sense in which the whole of our, the life of faith is sustained by little rituals 
that remind that enable us to let go whether it's let go letting go of time letting go of our money uh, letting go of our anxieties letting go of our selfish ambitions and so forth all these little practices enable us to remember we are not at the center of the universe that's a good thing all these little practices that help us remain in touch with the god the being verb god the god who is present and there and who saves In the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen